Welcome to Gospel in Life. As you may have heard recently, it is with sadness that we share with you that our founder and friend, Timothy J. Keller, passed away in the morning of May 19th, 2023, at the age of 72, trusting in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection. While our hearts are heavy with the news of Tim's death and our prayers are with his family as they go through the grieving process, our spirits are also lifted because we know that he has a new life and is with his Savior and that one day we will see him again. And so with that hope in mind, we want to honor Tim's wishes and continue ministering the gospel during this season. Because as you have heard Tim say many times, the gospel changes everything. So listen now to his teaching and join us in praying for his family. Thank you. If you look in your bulletin, you'll find the passage that we're going to be looking at tonight. It should be right where you are. If you're, if you're not asleep, if you're following along, it's uh, Genesis 16, verses 1 to 16. It's a story of Hagar and Sarah and Abraham. Let me read it to you. By the way, all the way through here, Sarah and Abraham are called Sarai and Abraham, Abram. Their names were changed later. And just because I'm just going to get confused, I'm just going to start right out from the very beginning calling them Sarah and Abraham, okay? Uh, and so let's read it that way. Now, Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abraham, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abraham agreed to what Sarah said. So after Abraham had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. And when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarah came to Abraham. You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abraham said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarah mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. And the angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now with child and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was named Beer Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bereth. So Hagar bore Abraham a son, and Abraham gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. And this is God's word. And some of you are saying, and? 
what's all this about? Why am I here listening to this story? And we're in these evening services, what we've been doing is we've been looking at people who have had close encounters with God, people who've actually met him, people who have actually had face-to-face close encounters. And almost every situation, when they're all done, they say, I can't believe that I'm still alive. And, and Hagar is one of them. We've actually had three, uh, and this is the third, of, there's three very interesting uh, narratives, accounts in the Bible of, of uh, encounters with God. Abraham, remember, if you were here, met God on a dark and stormy night, just like tonight, in Genesis 15. Sarah meets, um, meets the Lord at high noon in the heat of the day in Genesis 16, in Genesis 18, excuse me. And now here in Genesis 16, we see the story of Hagar, the maidservant. And, uh, it, we, because, uh, Sarah and, uh, and Hagar's experiences overlap, we made some, uh, reference to Hagar and Sarah and the meaning of Sarah's, Sarah's barrenness at the end of, uh, the, uh, the discussion we had of, of Genesis 18, but here tonight we, we uh, see it, the centerpiece. We have here a story that will tell you the gospel. This is the gospel according to Hagar. The gospel is in every single part of the Bible. There's no part without it. Now look, let me, let's, just, let's just work through it. Verse 1, now Sarah had born no children. Let's look at that. What does that mean? What is the significance of that? And I'd like to look at it psychologically and theologically. You have to understand the psychological and theological significance of that statement, or you're not going to understand the narrative. First of all, psychologically, what it meant for Sarah was devastation. Because in that time and in that culture, that culture assigned a particular role to women. And in that culture, what was the role of the woman? And Sarah actually mentions it down here in verse 2, to build a family. That was your role. If you're a woman, that's what you were there for. You were there to bear children and build a family, period, full stop. That's it. And in that culture, that meant that children were a woman's capital. They were her significance. And if she didn't have them, she was disgraced, and she felt worthless. And the fact that she had borne no children was psychologically devastating. It meant she was in tremendous pain and tremendous despair. But not only that, theologically, God had come to Abraham, and God had said to Abraham at least twice now, and we looked at one of these in Genesis 15, God had said in the clearest terms, he says, I'm going to save the world. Look around you, Abraham. Look at death. Look at suffering. Look at war. Look at poverty. Look at disease. Look at the world the way it is. I'm going to save the world. And I'm going to save the world through your family. I'm going to give you and Sarah a son. And out of that son will come a mighty family. Out of that will come a great nation. And out of that great nation will come the hero, the Messiah, the one who's going to save the world from everything. Through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's what he says to Abraham. That's the promise. And so now he's never, at this point, God has never appeared to Sarah. 
Sarah has never heard the voice of the Lord, but Abraham has come and told Sarah. Now, what Sarah thinks about it, I'm not sure. My guess is that at certain times, Sarah must have really thought, Abraham, he's crazy. His God is going to give us a son. But you know, whether she thought he was crazy or whether she really believed what he had said, it didn't matter because on top of the normal kind of shame and disgrace and pain that a woman in her time and place would have felt. On top of that, you have Abraham saying, we're going to have a son. We're going to have a son. He was like twisting the knife. It was just, it was just worse than ever because now I'm not just letting down Abraham. Now I'm not just letting down my people. Now I'm not just letting down my culture. Now I'm letting down God. (laughs) I'm letting down the world. You see, she was in despair. She was in a terrific amount of pain. And therefore, verse 2, it says, So she said to Abraham, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant, Hagar. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Now, what's the significance of that? Again, it's twofold. First of all, um, what's Sarah doing? First of all, Sarah is proposing something that was not only a common practice, was almost a universal practice. Historians, archaeologists, all these uh, people who understood something about ancient cultures would tell you, at that part of the world, at that time, this was the universal practice. And that is, Sarah was the matriarch of that clan. Sarah was the matriarch, and uh, Abraham was the patriarch. Sarah could bring one of her servants and bring her to Abraham... Abraham could essentially take her as a wife, but a sort of second-tier wife. If you look carefully, look, it says down in verse 3, Sarah took his wife, uh, pardon me, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and gave her to husband to be his wife. And yet, look at verse 4, she began to despise her mistress. In other words, she became Abraham's wife, but a second-tier wife. She was still a slave. She was still a servant. But most of all, and what's interesting, is when she says, I can build a family through her, the fact is that the child that Hagar would bear would actually belong to Sarah. Sarah would take the child. It would be Sarah's child. Sarah, in a sense, would adopt the child. Sarah would have control over the child. And that's the way it was done. Now, uh, we have a question and answer time afterwards, and anybody who really has burning questions about this might want to come and stay for that, because I can't answer all of them. I can just tell you this. There is no place in the Bible where this, where this is condoned, nowhere. And whenever Abraham, wherever Moses, wherever David, and, you know, almost all the Old Testament, you know, dudes were, were doing this, whenever they got into the experience of polygamy, Many wives or concubines, whenever the Bible lifts up and describes the experience, the experience is always a disaster. And it's a disaster here. It's a tremendous disaster. You have to give Sarah credit. She was trying. But boy, I'll tell you, you can see, and we will see in a second, she was tremendously vulnerable at a time like that. I mean, uh, polygamy was never condoned by the God of the Bible anywhere in the Bible because it's devastating for women. Not only is Sarah tremendously uh, vulnerable at this point and, and really kind of defenseless in many ways, but as we're going to see, there's tremendous division, tremendous jealousy, terrific strife, a disaster in the family. If you look down close uh, near the end, and this is the only time I have a time to refer to this, remember when the angel of the Lord appears and says, oh, let me tell you about your son. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. Now, you don't have to be Sigmund Freud to understand why that happened. 
Ishmael grew up and he was the older child. But when Isaac comes along later on, the child of Sarah, everybody from the word go, every day, every moment of every day, Ishmael, all he knew was Isaac is the favorite. You're second. You're second class. Your mother's a slave. Now, it doesn't take Sigmund Freud to realize what kind of kid you'd turn into. If you grew up being told all your, all your life, you're second, you're inferior. You see, the abuse, the division, the anger, the hostility, the hostility, the jealousy, the fragmentation that always, always, always accompanied this. And somebody says, well, then, you know, if, if, if polygamy was just such a devastating uh, experience for families, why in the world did it go on? And the answer is men wanted it. And they had the power. And you can see right here, Abraham is the only one that's heard the voice of God. And Abraham is the one that says, okay. And Abraham is the one who basically just does it. And both of these women are victims, in this case, of Abraham. It doesn't mean that they're not responsible. It doesn't mean that they don't do anything wrong. But you see, he sets them up. Sarah's trying her best. But she's walking into an emotional minefield, and she blows up. But to Abraham... The significance of what happens, look at verse 2. It says, the NIV translation says, uh, <clears throat> Abraham agreed to what Sarah said. Now, you know, that's a little unfortunate, but I guess it's okay to translate it that way. Literally, it says, and Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarah. Now, that's the narrator. That is the writer's way of trying to point out that before this, he had been listening to the voice of the Lord. Today, he listens to the voice of Sarah. In other words... Abraham had in front of him two women, and Abraham wanted a family. And if he decided to go with Hagar, what he was really doing is saying, look, I know I'm a man, I'm an old man, but I'm, I'm, I'm still fertile, I know. And she is a young woman and she's fertile. So here is Sarah. She's barren. She is old. If I try to have a family through Sarah, I will have to rely on divine supernatural grace. And if I try to have a family through Hagar, I, frankly, that's something within my human ability. And so in front of, the, of Abraham is whether he wants to save himself through grace or save himself through works. Whether he wants to save himself through his own human ability or completely rely on supernatural grace. And this is the reason why in Galatians chapter 4... Paul is speaking with the Galatians and he's desperately trying to get them to see that you cannot be made right with God through your human efforts. You cannot be made right with God by living a good life. You cannot say, I will develop my own righteousness and I will give it to God, then God will bless me. No, no, says, says, Abraham, says uh, Paul. Paul says the gospel is not that you develop a righteousness and give it to God. The answer is of the gospel is that God develops a righteousness and gives it to you. That's the gospel. And how does he develop a righteousness? Through the supernatural actions of God in history. God becomes flesh, incarnation. God on the cross, the Son of God dies, atonement. Then he's raised from the dead, resurrection. Through the supernatural grace of God, a righteousness comes to us. And that's the reason why Paul, at the climax, as some people would say, of the letter to the Galatians, when he's trying to say to the Galatians, do not believe that you can be saved through your own efforts. You must rely on the supernatural grace of God. What does he put in front of us but Hagar and Sarah? And in Galatians 4, this is exactly what uh, Paul says. He says, listen, you who want to save yourselves by obeying the law. It is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman, the other by the free woman. 
that his son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but the son of the free woman was the result of a promise. See what Paul's saying. For, for you and me, Hagar and Sarah are symbols. And Paul says they symbolize salvation by works and salvation by grace. But for, for Abraham, they were not symbols. They were literally in front of him. And he could either decide to save himself on the basis of what he could humanly attain with his own capabilities or to rely on the supernatural miracle and grace of God. And he went with Hagar. And because he decided to save himself, the immediate results were pain and disaster, and that's always true. Always. So he slept with Hagar, and she conceived, and now look, and when she knew she was pregnant... She began to despise her mistress. Literally, it says, she, her mistress looked little to her. You know, the Hebrew, by the way, is an extremely graphic and concrete language. They don't have abstract names and words. And so what it said was, in her eyes, her mistress was small. She began to look down at her mistress. She began to get arrogant. And now look, Sarah comes to Abram and basically says, this is your fault. I put... You know, and you know, I feel here. Don't you feel for? He says, I, look what I did. I put my servant in your arms, my husband's arms. I gave another woman to you. And now look at what I'm going through. She despises me. And when she says, may the Lord judge between you and me, what she's saying is, I'm furious and I have a right to be. I'm the one, not the one to blame. You're the one to blame. I have a right to be furious. God judge that I'm not to blame. It's your fault. And what does Abram do? The wimp. Unbelievable. You see, he's moving right along. Let me tell you something. One act of faithlessness leads to another. And he says, hey, she's your employee. You know, that's the other, that's not my department. And what we're told is Sarah mistreated Hagar. And we're not really sure what that means. And people have suggested that he, she beat, beat her. Why not? She was a slave. I mean, you know, to mistreat slaves, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to know what that might mean. And all we know, it was so bad that a pregnant woman fled out into the desert. And so out she goes. Now, there's a lot of ways to look at what Sarah and Hagar did. And, I, and when I read all the commentaries and I read what other people said about it, I really felt like to some degree they were missing the boat. Uh, one of the reasons is this. The first thing you notice about... Hagar is that she was proud. And so you could say, now let's, let's, let's talk about the sin of pride. It was very wrong of her to be proud. And then the, the trouble with Sarah was she was jealous. So let's talk about the sin of jealousy. It's very wrong to be jealous, but I think we're missing the point, especially in light of what Paul says in Galatians 4. Why is Hagar puffed up? And why is Sarah in despair? Why has Hagar got this incredible superiority complex, and now why does Sarah have this incredible inferiority complex? Well, let's go back to something. My guess is you're modern people and you live in New York City, and I would think most of you, and especially the women who are present here, when you heard me describe what traditional culture assigned women and said, your capital, your significance, your worth is to build a family and to have children, period. That's it. And many, most of you, I would think, right away would say, that was terrible. To have a culture assign you a role like that and say, this is what you have to have to have any value. How terrible. And many of you, I'm sure, have gone to 
uh, Ivy League schools, very, very good schools, academically good schools. And over the last 10 or 20 years, if you're a woman at that school, you've been told this. You must throw off the remnant of the shackles of these traditional cultures that have assigned you a role and said, you've got to have children and a family. Otherwise, you're worthless. Oh, no, you were told. What you need to do is go out and get a career. Decide what you want to be and go do it. Now, not for a minute am I saying that traditional culture was not oppressive to women. Not for a minute am I denying that this is oppression. It was terrible for women to be bought and sold in this way. But I don't want you to overlook something, and that is, spiritually speaking, every culture assigns women a role, and it has happened to you too. Because in the traditional cultures, it assigns you a role. It says you have to be mothers and wives, period. But when you go off to college and it says you got to go and get a job, do you realize that instead of traditional culture, our Western secular individualistic culture, and in college you're socialized into it, has assigned you a role too. And it is saying there is something you must do. If you're at home with kids, it might be saying if you're at home with kids, you're nothing. you got to have a job. But don't you see, do you not see, every culture, spiritually speaking, will assign you a role and you will hear it. And it will say, this is what you've got to have. And if you don't have it, you're nothing. Every culture assigns everybody, not just women. Every culture assigns everybody that. And then you're bound. Thank you for listening to today's teaching here on Gospel and Life. As you process the news of Tim's passing, we recognize that you may be looking for a way to respond. To help with that, we have set up a page that gives you a way to share your condolences, submit a story of how Tim's teaching or writing has helped you, or simply how you can pray for the Keller family and this ministry. For more information, please visit gospelandlife.com slash remembering. That's gospelandlife.com slash remembering. Now here's the remainder of today's teaching. You want to see what it means to be bound? Here. Let's just take a look at this one case study. Here's one particular person, a, a woman, and here is one culture, an ancient culture, and they're told children, that's your significance. What happens to Hagar when she, start, when she realizes she's going to have a child? Is she happy about having a child? To some degree, but she's not excited about the child. The child makes her feel like somebody. She's not rejoicing in the child for itself. She's rejoicing now. I mean, it's not about children. It's about her. If your culture says, this is what you've got to have, then you're not, you're not bearing children for the joy of bearing children. And when you start to have children, you're puffed up. And you say, look at me. I'm a woman. I'm really what I, I'm somebody. And look at poor Sarah. In other words, Hagar can't just enjoy having a child. She's got a distorted ego. She's got an inflated self-view now. She's become overweening and proud. But look at Sarah, because Sarah, for Sarah, children is her salvation. Children is her capital. Children is her significance. What happens to her? She can't just say, Hagar, being so petty. Oh, no. She is utterly vulnerable. She is completely defenseless. She has no emotional self-control. Because without children, she's nobody, and she can't take it. And she's blowing up. Now, here's what I want you to know. If your culture says, oh, no, it's not children, it's career, you're in the same boat. When you, you won't work for the joy of doing a good job or being productive or, or, or producing something good for people. You'll be working to be somebody. And if you get 
anywhere near your goals, you will despise others. You will look down. You'll become overwinning. You'll have an inflated view of yourself. And if you can't get it, you'll be like Sarah. You'll be emotionally defenseless. You'll be emotionally out of control. You'll be depressed. You'll be angry. You'll blow up. You'll hit people. That's where it's from. It's not just pride and jealousy in general. These women are victims of their culture, and everybody in this room is a victim of his or her culture unless, as Paul says, unless you can understand the gospel. What is the gospel? Ah, this is the gospel. Near the end of Isaiah, uh, near the end of this passage in, in Galatians 4, where he's talking about Sarah and about Hagar, suddenly Paul turns to Isaiah and he quotes Isaiah. And this is what he quotes. This is an amazing passage to me. He quotes Isaiah from Isaiah 54, verse 1, and it says, Be glad, O barren woman, you who bear no children. Break forth and cry aloud, you who have no labor pains. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now this, you see, Paul is just reading this passage. Because when the angel of the Lord comes to Hagar, and we'll, 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 we'll mop up here at the end and, and give a few uh, statements about what, he, what the angel of the Lord does with uh, Hagar. At the end, what does he say to Hagar? He says, listen, I'm going to protect you. The Lord will protect you. The Lord will give you a son. And, and you will turn, your, your, your son will turn into a great family and into a mighty nation. But there's no promise of salvation. And so Paul reads this passage. See, it says, look, he says, you are now with child. You will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone. But you see, he says, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. That's a great blessing, but, but, but he does not say, and through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So Paul says, the children of the barren woman are greater than if she who has a husband. Now, the thing that moves me so much is this. Paul is trying to say, do you want to be free from what your culture tells you is your significance? The only way you'll be free from your culture and the only way you'll be free from continually being whipped back and forth between Hagar and Sarah, between superiority and inferiority, between overly inflated and underinflated views of yourself, is if you understand that your righteousness is a supernatural gift of the grace of God. And when Christ is your life, not children. Christ is your life, not wealth. Christ is your life, not family. What's so amazing about Paul, so amazing about the gospel, is it doesn't acquiesce. Maybe there's somebody out there that thinks that, well, my goodness, if I'm a you know, pastor of a church that believes the Bible and all this sort of thing, that I'd be saying, yes, women, you know, your place is in the home. By the way, one thing I won't say is women, it's stupid to stay at home. By no means. That would be just as culturally bound as to say, women, you need to stay at home because you've got to have children. And that's really what the gospel undermines all. The gospel is so incredibly subversive. It undermines every culture there's ever been. It smashes every single idol. And it says, and you know, it's amazing for Isaiah to say this and for Paul to say this because those were traditional cultures. It says, it says women, your ch children is not your capital. If Christ is your life, you will bear fruit, and your fruit will be greater 
than anything you can imagine. This is a particularly great for people, for women who do want to have children and are not going to be able to have children, maybe because they don't have a husband. What is it saying? It's saying, if Christ is your life, you will have so many children. It says, because more are the children of the desolate woman who has Christ than of her who has a husband. Do you realize the people you can affect? Do you realize the people that your children, how many children you will have all around you for all eternity? Men and women that you have loved, men and women that you have shepherded, men and women in a sense that you have mothered. And the same, see, what about, now let's turn around. What about the man who has a particular goal and you haven't attained your goal? Let's just say you wanted to make a dent, you know, as of this or that in the world. Let's say something like that. It, the gospel comes and says, because that's not your salvation, you can work and realize you will bear fruit. You will bear enormous fruit no matter what. You're free from what the culture says. You don't have to whip back and forth between being Hagar and Sarah. No more. This is amazing. The gospel is everywhere. Now, we need to mop up. Finally, let's just take a look and see what happens. She runs off into the desert. And let me just, let me just draw two or three very important practical uh, principles from here. Uh, it says, the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. Who's the angel of the Lord? All we know is that when the angel of the Lord shows up in the burning bush, Moses says, I have seen the Lord. When the angel of the Lord shows up and wrestles with Jacob, Jacob says, I have seen the Lord. When the angel of the Lord shows up before Joshua, remember, dressed as a military general, afterwards, Joshua says, I have seen the Lord. You see, whenever the angel of the Lord shows up, and he can be an he can be a burning bush, or he can be a military general, or he could just show up like he did in, in Genesis 18 and had lunch. And it took a whole long time for Abraham and everybody else around to figure this is the Lord. You never know. The Lord doesn't have just one way. You know, he may, he may descend with drama into somebody's life over here, and then you look and say, I guess that's what it means to be converted. You have to have this incredible experience. And over there, you know, he's, he's a still small voice. You don't know. And from what we can tell is the way he comes to Hagar is it doesn't look like she knew who he was yet either. And he says, and secondly, he says, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? You see, she realizes later on this is the Lord. This is the Lord. And you know what? Do you realize how many times God shows up? He shows up when he talks to Jonah. He shows up and he talks to Elijah. We spent some time with Elijah. How many times God does not show up and say anything but starts to ask questions? It, 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 it happens so often that God shows up and the first thing he does is he starts asking questions. Instead of declaiming, instead of proclaiming, instead of declaring, he, he asks questions. I don't know quite what I'm supposed to learn from that, but I know I've got to learn something. And I think we've got to look and say, if God, who knows everything, shows up and asks questions gently, maybe we need to be better listeners. Maybe. Maybe. And then I'm running for my mistress, Sarah. And the angel of the Lord said, go back to your mistress and submit to her. Now, somebody says, oh, my gosh, that seems like the very worst possible thing. Go back into an abusive situation. But here he says, I will increase you. And I have heard your misery. And so what he's saying is, I want you to know that I'm here because you're miserable and I want to do something about it. And if you 
the best place for you to be is back there. Sometimes God will call you into a situation that doesn't seem very good. But you see, he hears your misery. And very often, you know, it's, from my perspective, her going back to Egypt, where she's from, she's on her way back to Egypt from what we can tell, is a good idea. Get away from an abusive mistress like that. Yet the Lord shows up and says, I have to tell you something that's counterintuitive. I want you back there. And it was the best place for her. All things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. But here's maybe the last thing. The Lord has heard of your misery. And a couple of the, uh, you know, a, a couple of the, uh, the people who I was reading, commentators, said that uh, it's pretty interesting that he doesn't say the Lord has heard your prayer. In fact, literally, it says, the Lord has heard your distress. It doesn't say of, you know, of, come on. God's up, what is he doing, watching the news? You know, somebody says, have you heard about Hagar? Oh, no. No, it's nothing like that. God doesn't hear of anything. He hears her distress. And you know, that really comforts me tremendously. Because down he comes and says, not, you were praying and you prayed so well that I had to come. Thank goodness he doesn't say that. He'd never come to me. And uh, he doesn't say, uh, I saw that you were really living a very good and godly life, so I came. No, he doesn't say that. Why has he come? God has got a heart that our very pain and distress cries out to him. God has got a heart, so it shows up always on his own heart. He hears our distress, and he comes. Actually, I, I told a fib, there is one more thing that we need to see. We need to be listeners. Hmm? We need to realize God very often calls us into situations that are best for us. It doesn't feel like it. We need to see also, of course, that God is of such, such compassion that he actually hears not our prayer, but he comes not because we pray well, not because we're living well, but simply because we hurt. But then last of all, if you go to 10 translations, every one of them will translate this verse differently. It says in verse 13, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. Now this second part, it says, for she said, it's a question. In Hebrew, it's a question. And literally it says, have I seen after the seer? Literally in Hebrew, it says, have I? It's, it's, first of all, it's a question. It's a question. And the question is very important to see that it's a question. It's, it's a statement of wonder. And she says, have I seen after the seer? Now, there's a man named Derek Kidner who's written a commentary on Genesis, a commentary on Proverbs, a comment, and commentary on Psalms. And I have lived off these commentaries for years and years. They're like food to me. And uh, he's a tremendous, tremendous commentator. And he says, when she says, I, have I seen after the one, have I seen after the, the seer? The word after must mean, have I seen the back parts of the one who sees everything? That's the best way to translate it. Here's what's going on. She does get the gospel here. Because on the one hand, she realizes that God is the one who sees everyone. God is the one who sees everything. God is the seer. Not just the one who sees me, but the one who sees absolutely everything. He's the holy one. He's the majestic one. He sees everything at once. But she says, have I seen the seer? 
Have I been allowed to see the seer and live? She understands the gospel because the gospel is this. Holiness, greatness, sees everything, yet grace, I'm allowed to come near and not die. She understood that. And the reason that I think she was able to go back is, if you just believe in a seer, see, if you just believe in a loving God who loves everybody, but you don't see that you're a sinner and you shouldn't come near him, or if you only see that you're a sinner and shouldn't come near him and you don't realize his grace, either way, you're not going to be a transformed person. But Hagar is saying, if a God as great as that lets me in, if a God like that loves me like that, what do I have to be afraid of? If a God like that, as great as that, loves me like that, as kindly and loving as that, I don't have anything to be afraid of. In a primitive way, in a primordial way, in a very, very rudimentary and fundamental way, she grasped the gospel when she said, have I seen the back parts of the seer? Have I been allowed to see the one who sees everything and still live? And when that happened, she was able to go back. If you've seen God... And you know that God loves you anyway. If you've seen the Holy One, and yet you've been accepted, you can be scared of Sarah? Come on. And she goes back. How should we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for providing for us this picture of the gospel. It's everywhere. We thank you for showing it to us here in the life of Sarah, Abraham, and Hagar. Help us to be so freed from the, uh, the whiplash of superiority and inferiority. Help us to be so free from our culture. Help us to be so free from all these things that we, we also, like Hagar, freed by the gospel, can go back into our world with all the problems that are there, smiling, free, powerful, at peace. So, for, Father, we ask that it is, as we get nearer and nearer to Christmas, as we get nearer and nearer to the great supernatural act of grace when your Son came to earth, becoming human, we pray that we might more and more, not like Abraham in this case, more and more, we might trust in the supernatural grace of God. So, Father, now grant all the prayers that we just made for Jesus' sake. In his name we pray them. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's teaching. We recognize that many of you will want to respond to the news of Tim's passing. If you would like to know more about how to share your condolences or to share a story of how Tim's writing or teaching helped you, or if you just want to know how you can pray, please visit gospelandlife.com remembering. This month's sermons were recorded in 1996 and 2009. The sermons and talks you hear on the Gospel and Life podcast were preached from 1989 to 2017, while Dr. Keller was senior pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian Church.